Good afternoon to all of you. Um, haven't seen some of you since last year. I know it's a terrible joke, but I am a pastor. So uh, it's funny that I was watching my friends. So I have a friend who's a pastor, and he uh, is a pastor of a different church, obviously. And we meet in the afternoon. So this morning when I was getting ready for our service, I was watching their, their live stream because uh, they started doing one during COVID time. And uh, when he got up to, to speak, I already wrote down that I'm going to share that terrible joke, but he was so sincere. He was, you know, this is the year that the Lord has made. And I, it's so good to be here with all of you. I miss seeing you. Welcome back if I haven't seen you during the holidays. And it really made me feel kind of bad, but I still didn't change my intro. But anyway, it's good to see all of you. Um, if you're new or visiting, we're glad you're here. Uh, I know it's a, it's a new year, so maybe you're checking out a different church. If, if you're new uh, this week, hopefully you can stick around. We can get to know you a little bit. Uh, if you've been around, welcome back. It's good to see you. It's always good uh, to see you. Now, we uh, are in a new year, but we're not in a new series. So if you've been with us, you know that we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And right now we're in chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there, Ecclesiastes 9. There's only 12 chapters in this book. So we're, we're kind of getting toward the end, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And we'll begin with this. It was Benjamin Franklin who famously once said, In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, we've said that Ecclesiastes doesn't shy away from death. It talks about it all the time. We mentioned it. And because Ecclesiastes talks about it and we're going through this book, we're not going to shy away from it either. We've been talking about death almost every week. And the truth is you can evade taxes. Okay, that's why the IRS exists. But you cannot evade death. You can't escape it. Death is a certainty in this world east of Eden. And this idea is at the center, and it's one of the main themes of the film Big Fish. Anyone ever see that movie? It's based on a novel called Big Fish. If you've read that book, they're relatively similar. But Big Fish tells the story of a man named William Bloom and his father, Edward. It's kind of about their relationship. It's about how uh, Edward, the father, has been diagnosed with cancer, and he doesn't have that much longer to live. And William comes back home to visit him. They're kind of estranged. But he wants to get to know his father and kind of make the most of the last few days or weeks that they have. Their relationship, like I said, is strained, to put it mildly. They hadn't talked in years. And the reason why becomes clear if you're reading the book or you're watching the movie. It's because Edward, the father, is kind of an interesting guy. Okay, he's eccentric. He's not, he's not a normal person. He's always cracking jokes. And he loves to tell these stories about his life. He's exaggerations. They don't seem real. Times where he bought an entire town to save the town or times where he had to fight a giant. And you're not sure if these things are are real or fake or they're based on a true story or if he just made them up. And that's why William and Edward have the strained relationships uh, partially. Because when William, William, when when he was a kid, he loved the stories. He loved how his dad would tell these stories and he would get excited about them and he would repeat them. But as he got older, as he became an adult... He wasn't sure if his father was lying to him or not. He felt like his father was a stranger. He didn't even know this guy. He just tells these stories, and who knows what really happened in his life. One of Edward's favorite stories to tell was how he used his wedding ring 
to catch this humongous fish. That's partially why it's called Big Fish. It kind of plays off this idea of people telling about how they caught this fish that was humongous, and you never believe me. I don't have a picture. You just got to trust me. But William feels his father is always exaggerating, always lying. In fact, how big was that fish for real, Dad? All right, these are the things that he wants to know. Uh, was there really a giant? Did you buy a town? Where were you when you were away for work? Tell me the truth about who you are, the real you. So in the movie, they're sitting together with time clearly running out, and William just wants his dad to be serious for once in his life. Right? If there's one time to be serious about things, it's on your deathbed. But Edward, his father, refuses. He keeps telling the same old stories. He's cracking jokes. He wants to focus on the life that he lived or lived and not on death. Now, we'll come back to this. But let me ask you a question as we begin this year and as we get into this series. How do you think you will be on your deathbed? It's not an easy thing to think of, okay? But use your imagination. I know it's not easy to picture, but just try for a second. You're on your deathbed. You don't have that much more time. What are the things that you want to be thinking about? What are the memories that you'll want to remember? Or what are the memories that you want to create now so that you'll be able to remember them later? Who are the people that you want to be there with you? What regrets do you not want to have? Do you want to be brave? Do you want to be content? Do you want to feel like you're ready? See, here's the thing. Okay, I can tell some of you are already uncomfortable by this line of thinking, but the thing is, death is the specter that lurks over everything east of Eden. Ecclesiastes talks about this again and again. Everyone dies. I will die and you will die too. A hundred years from now, not a single person here will still be alive. Maybe, okay, maybe a couple of you, but you'll be close to death. Now, we said this already again and again in the series. But I think it does bear repeating. And this is the week where we're really going to focus on it. In fact, um, in, my, in my seminary days, I remember my old Greek professor used to always say that repetition is the key to learning. The key to learning is repetition. He would say it every day. I barely remember most of my Greek vocabulary, but I do remember that because he repeated it so often. And this is why Ecclesiastes repeats it. This is why I'm going to keep repeating it today, uh, no matter how uncomfortable it might make you. Every single person dies. Everyone dies. Ecclesiastes is going to repeat this until we've internalized it. Now, why do you think that this is important? Some people dismiss Ecclesiastes as just being a depressing book. It just wants to talk about these morbid... No, that's not it. Why does Ecclesiastes hit us over the head with the fact of our deaths? Well, the author, David Gibson, he wrote one of the best books on Ecclesiastes that I read. And I'm indebted to his book, at least for this sermon. Uh, his book is called Living Life Backwards. This is what he said. He said, I'm convinced that only a proper perspective on death provides the true perspective on life. Living in the light of your death will help you to live wisely and freely and generously. It will give you a big heart and open hands and enable you to relish all the small things of life in deeply profound ways. Death can teach you the meaning of mirth. All this I have learned from Ecclesiastes, end quote. Ecclesiastes talks about death because Ecclesiastes is a book that's trying to teach us how to live. To quote Ben Franklin again, some people die at 25 
and they're only buried at 75. A lot of people aren't really living. So what does death have to teach us? Let me read our text. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. Let me read, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. These are the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate, their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shield to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would speak through your word. God, even as we know that these are the words of the preacher, these are the words of Solomon, your servant, and the king, ultimately these words were inspired by your Holy Spirit. These words are instruction for us on how to live and how to live well and righteously with joy in this life. So God, I pray that you would teach us the lessons that we need to learn from this text. I pray that you would help us to internalize them. I pray that you would help us to look at them without flinching. And God, I pray that we would live differently because of what your word says. That it won't just be theory, God, but that it would be our real lives. God, we need your help to do this. God, I know that my words are insufficient to this end. So we pray, God, that you would work, that you would move that you would draw us to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're nearing the end of this book, like I said. Okay, only a few more chapters. It's going to fly by, and then we'll be on to the next thing. But in this chapter, the preacher wants to drive home some lessons. Okay, the certainty of death. He's already talked about this. The uncertainty of life. He's also talked about that already. And even in his takeaway, to enjoy life, to eat, and to drink, None of this is new to Ecclesiastes. What is new, though, is what he says in verse 7, if you look at the text. 
Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. It's an interesting thing to say. Now, we'll get to that in a little bit, but the preacher, what he's doing is he's driving the nails in. He wants us to understand the implication of the argument that he's been building throughout the book the past eight chapters. We need to understand death if we are going to understand how to enjoy life without getting sucked into a vortex of vanity. Okay, we need to understand death if we're to put in hard work without getting lost in trying to find meaning in our toil. And we need to understand death if we're to understand how God fits into life east of Eden under the sun. We're not supposed to party our lives away. We're not supposed to work ourselves to an early grave. But there is something that God has approved for us to do. We're supposed to live our lives well. And the way to do that is to live backwards from the day of our death. It's to live backwards from the end to the beginning, from starting with what's certain that all of us will die and moving backwards from that. Now, we're going to look at this text in three parts, okay? So to give you kind of a map of where we're going, first, the thing we know or should know. Second, the things we don't. So the thing we know is that we're going to die. The things we don't is basically everything else. And then the third, the thing to do. How we're supposed to navigate this tension between the certainty of death and the uncertainties of life. So first, let's get into it. The thing we know, the thing we know, which is about the certainty of death. First point, the thing we know. Verse one, but all this I laid to heart, examining uh, it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Okay, so he says the righteous, the wise. Okay, these are the people who are on the side of God. He says that their lives are in the hand of God and their deeds. These are the people who try to live according to God's design. Okay, who walk justly. We talked about this a little last week. Last week, we talked about how wisdom is useful in life. It can help us to enjoy it and to endure it. But here, the preacher says that the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. God guides their steps and yet keep reading. He says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now, this is a hard text, okay? Even to understand what he's saying at face value. Uh, what does that even mean? Whether it is love or hate? In English, it's not even clear to us what he's even remotely getting at. But here's what he means. From our human point of view, okay, just looking at our circumstances, the things around us, from our vantage point under the sun, even though we might know that the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God, that he is in control of their lives, that he has a plan for them, even though we might strive to be righteous and wise, it won't be clear to us just looking around whether God loves us or hates us. Kind of a crazy thing to say, but this is the preacher's observation. If you just look at our circumstances, it won't be clear to us if God loves us or he hates us. Both good and bad things will happen to the righteous and the unrighteous. If we judge merely by outward circumstances, we will have no idea what our relationship with God is like. You know, I heard someone talking about how when he was young, he read this book by a famous megachurch pastor. And the megachurch pastor had this line of reasoning in the book. So first of all, what he said was, uh, it's important to live for God. And he said, okay, that sounds good. Okay, that sounds reasonable to me. He said, every Christian is a child of God. 
Okay, And if you're a child of God, that means that God loves you and wants to bless you. All of this was uh, pretty spot on, he felt. So then the preacher or the pastor, okay, the megachurch pastor said, so why don't you have the nicest house in your neighborhood? If you're really a child of God, why hasn't God given you nice things? And he was like, I don't know. So he turned the book over, and there's a picture of the pastor there smiling, and he had the supernaturally white teeth. And if you look him up online, he has the biggest house in his neighborhood. So, okay, the argument was, I guess you just don't have enough faith. So you got to show your faith by donating to my ministry, right? Bless God by blessing me, and then you will be blessed somewhere down the line. Okay, they call this a pyramid scheme, but in church circles, we call it the prosperity gospel. It sounds reasonable on the surface. God wants to bless you. You are God's child. Uh, why don't you have material blessings? But it's not grounded in reality, as the preacher says, or scripture. This is why you need to read the Bible, okay? And especially Ecclesiastes. Don't shy away from this book. The preacher says, look around at people's lives. Look around at your own life. Good things and bad things happen to everybody. Our circumstances do not reflect our standing before God. They are not a reliable metric. Even look at Jesus Christ's life. If anyone was a child of God, it was him. If anyone was blessed of God or loved by God, it was him. And yet look at how he met his demise. The ultimate example of a bad thing happening to everyone, righteous or unrighteous, is the thing that happened to Jesus. We all die. Every single person dies. Verse 2. Look at what he says. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. Everyone dies. Whether you're righteous or wicked, whether you go to church or not, whether you are who you say you are or you are a fraud hypocrite. Every single person dies. Verse 3, this is an evil that in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Now, okay, you got to hear what the preacher is saying and what he's not saying. Okay, first of all, he's not saying that death is a good thing or that this is good news. He's just saying that this is reality. Okay, from a certain point of view, death makes everything pointless. And he understands this. In fact, the apostle Paul understood this too. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on the resurrection, uh, he says, he says this, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus Christ did not die and rise again, if there is no eternal life, if there is no heaven, then in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says, if there's nothing after this, might as well get drunk and eat junk. Okay. I think I made that up. Maybe I copied somebody. What Paul is saying is if we just die and that's it, there's no point to life. There's no point in trying to be wise. There's no point in living a good life or, or trying to be righteous in any way. Now, this is not what the preacher of Ecclesiastes is ultimately getting at, but he understands a little bit of this. Now, keep reading verse 3. We'll get there in a little bit. He says, Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Now, the preacher likes to use this term. Let me explain it. He likes to use the term children of man. Okay, now, in Hebrew... Okay, the word for man, the word for human is Adam, okay, Adam. He's talking about the children of Adam, okay, the children of the first human, okay? He's talking about humanity. We are all his children, and because of this, we all fell with him. James was praying about this actually a little earlier. 
Because of him, because we are his descendants, we inherit a sin nature. We are born sinners as he was. And therefore, we all die. The wages of sin is death. Our transgression is different than his, but we still transgress nonetheless. We still sin. Our hearts are full of evil. So there's no such thing as a quote-unquote good person or righteous person anyway, not literally, and Pastor Eric talked about this a few weeks ago. There is evil in our hearts. There is madness in our hearts too. There's something off in here, something broken in humanity, which makes it impossible for us to be completely wise or just. Therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise that we all die. Again, the wages of sin is death. Doesn't mean it's a good thing. The preacher is just saying that this is the reality. And this is really uncomfortable. You know, I was reading about, I was reading some random thing about the Victorian era and how it was different, you know, 1800s in Europe and such. And back in that time, uh, things were really different when it came to death. People were really fixated on having a really nice funeral. And part of the reason was people died all the time. I mean, people die now too, but medicine was different. A lot of diseases were incurable. The infant mortality rate was super high. So you're, you're expecting some of your kids to just not make it. Nowadays, it's the biggest tragedy that could happen. But for them, it was just, it still was a tragedy, but it was real life. So people would focus on, you know, having a really nice funeral procession, like having a parade. Even poor people would overspend. They would kill themselves, pun intended, to try to have the nicest funeral possible. And then other things they would never talk about. Okay? They wouldn't talk about sexuality at all. But then kind of what the point of the article was, our, our culture today, especially in America, is inverted. Sexuality is everywhere. It's like the number one thing people talk about. It's used to sell things. You turn on the TV, you can't escape it. But the minute you start talking about death, people are like, okay, I don't want to talk about this. Why are you bringing this up? Okay, I got plenty of time left. Why do you want to talk about death? You must be a weirdo, morbid person. People just want to joke about it. They want to run away. Ecclesiastes isn't saying that death is a good thing again or a pleasant thing. All it's saying is that it's a real thing. It's a certain thing. And we have to reckon with that reality. Every single person in this room is running out of time. If your life is an hourglass, the sand is already falling right now, and there's only a limited amount. Verse 4, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now, these verses are very disturbing when you read them in light of the rest of Scripture, which you should always do. Okay, Scripture interprets Scripture. It's called the analogy of faith. But when you hold this up to basically the rest of the Bible, it seems to be in contradiction. I mean, one of the first things that you hear about when you hear about Christianity is heaven. Right? Do you want to go to heaven when you die? Where do you think you're going to go? Do you not want to go to hell? We're, we're talking about the afterlife. It's associated with Christianity. And yet right here it says the dead know nothing and they're forgotten. They can't do anything. So what's going on? Well, the preacher, not only does he seem to be contradicting the rest of Scripture, he seems to be contradicting himself. In Ecclesiastes 4, if you remember this, he said, And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. So what's going on here? Obviously, he means something. So we got to get to the bottom of this. Well, as is always the case when you study scripture, context is the key. So in Ecclesiastes 4, he's talking about how evil the world is. 
how difficult life can be, how people suffer in life. And he's saying that there's a sense in which it's better to be dead than alive because then you don't have to see all this evil and wickedness and suffering. You don't have to hear about the latest child abuse scandal. You can be free of the depravity of this world. So there is a benefit to dying over living. Now, is he talking about how there's no afterlife? No, he's already talked about how there's a judgment after we live. Okay, he knows that God is real. He knows that there is an entire world above the sun. So what is he saying? He's saying that life objectively is better than death. He's saying when you die, you're out of time. You can't change things anymore. You can't love. You can't hate or even envy. It's done. Okay, you can't go back. You can't make plans. You can't give any more advice to your kids. You can't spend any more time with your your wife or your husband. Excuse me. You can't check off anything else on the bucket list. What he's saying is life is a precious commodity and there's only so much of it. And when it's done, it's done. Once you die, you can't live. And it sounds so simple and so trite, and yet it's the one thing that we don't want to listen to. Your life has an expiration date. You won't be able to do everything you want. You are going to die. The time for hoping and loving, and even hating and envying uh, everything you do under the sun. There's going to be a time where you'll, you will wake up for the last time. There will be a time where you step out into the sun east of Eden for the last time. That's just how it is. And the first step is accepting this. Wisdom is accepting that this is the truth. The question is, have you accepted it? This is the first thing. Have you accepted that you are going to die? Now, you might have some questions. You might say, Pastor, are we going to close in prayer now? Uh, of course not. Right? I still got like 80 more minutes. I got to talk. Second point. Second point. This leads to the second point. The things we don't. And the certainty of life that I think is unassailable is that we all die. Second point. The things we don't, which is about the uncertainties of life. So there are a lot of things we don't know. A lot of things we don't. Now, early on in this series, a couple months ago, I shared a tale of two pastors that I knew, or I guess that I know, uh, two different personalities. Okay, so one of them is a guy who on the surface, he just enjoys life. He has a lot of fun. He has a lot of hobbies. Uh, he is really good at music. He loves listening to music. He's good at cooking. He likes to cook food for his family and his friends. Um, he's just into stuff, okay? Now, I have another friend. He's a pastor. I have another friend who is a pastor at the same church, and he doesn't want to, uh, he, I'll just say he's intense. Okay, let me put it that way. He feels like we have a short life to live. That's kind of his motto. So we need to use it on things that are truly important like ministry. So basically he just grinds in ministry. That's kind of what he wants to do. That's what he feels like is right. Now I shared about these guys and I didn't say one way or the other who was right or who was wrong. And someone texted me after service and said, who was right? And I just blocked the number. No, I'm just kidding. I just said, you're right. I didn't say. He's like, is it kind of both? Is it kind of neither? I'm a little confused here. I'm still not going to say yet. I will before the end of this sermon. And it might not be what you think. But I bring up these two guys, and, and it's kind of caricatures of who they are, okay? I'm not getting to the heart of who they are. I'm not getting into the details. But just looking at them on the surface, I bring them up because I want you to think about something. You have to make a choice about what your life is going to be about. 
Okay, you have 24 hours in a day. We all do. We're all living. We're all doing stuff day to day. You got to choose what you want to do. Life is a series of crossroads. You go one way or you go the other. I'm either going to feast tonight. I'm going to cook a delicious meal. I'm going to go out to eat at a restaurant or I'm going to fast because I want to spend that time fasting and praying. I'm either going to try to get married and have kind of a family life or I'm going to not get married. I'm going to do something else. I'm either going to watch the game or I'm going to read a book or read the Bible or whatever. And of course, you can do both. You can watch the game and read the Bible, but you'll have to sacrifice time somewhere else. You'll have to sleep less, whatever. What I'm saying is you are going to live your life. That's what you're doing right now. You chose to be here. You're spending this time listening to me. Thank you. Uh, you know, I really, this is a serious thing, and I'll say it because it's New Year's, but I feel like people at Zoe really pay attention during the preaching, so thank you. I, I preach to other places where people are like, uh, one of my good friends fall asleep in the first five minutes. So thank you, thank you. What I'm saying is, though, you're going to live your life somehow. That's not the issue. Even if you try to kind of get on the sideline or you try to call a timeout, life still goes on. Time on the clock is still spinning around. You choose that you're going to do this. You choose you're going to do that. So how are you going to live it? And there's some confusion here. This is why I bring on my two friends. Okay, because I don't think either of them are necessarily wrong. Okay, I'll get there in a second. But is the message of Ecclesiastes that we should be more serious and more intense because life is short and much of it is vanity? Or is the message of Ecclesiastes that we should chill out and enjoy things a little bit more and lighten up because life is short and most of it is vanity? Seems to be contradictory, but what are we supposed to do? How do we navigate that? The preacher has established that death comes for us all. Now skip to verse 11. Okay, we're going to get to the middle at the end. We're going to go to the end first. Look at verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Okay, again, it seems like another contradiction in the scripture because Galatians 6-7, among other places, says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You reap what you sow. You get out of it what you put into it. You work hard, you make more money. You get out what you put in. But the preacher says that he's seen the fastest runner lose a race. The strongest warrior doesn't always survive the battle. The wise starve. The smartest sometimes are the poorest. Despite their best efforts, the giftings of these people fail. Time and chance, he says, happens to them all. Now, a little clarification. The Hebrew people did not believe in chance. Okay, They, of all people who have ever lived, believed in a sovereign God who was in control of everything. Every minute detail of their lives was in the hand of God. So what is he talking about here? Well, the word for chance in Hebrew literally says something like happenings. So time and happenings happen to us all. The idea isn't that things are random or uncontrolled. The idea is that we can't control the outcome. To us, it happens to us. We are the passive recipients of the future. There is no contradiction. You reap what you sow is a true principle, but it doesn't put the reins of life into our hands. We are not in control of what happens to us ultimately. We are not God. So you might be the strongest warrior, and that'll help you win a lot of battles, generally speaking. You could be Goliath. You could win every battle in your life until God raises up David to take you down. 
in one battle, that's your last. You might be the wisest man in a city, but if there's a famine, then you will also go hungry like the rest. What he's saying is that sowing and reaping have their limits east of Eden. And then he says, verse 12, to tie things together. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. The end, which is certain, is also out of your control. The fact that you will die is a certainty, but when, where, and how, it's not for you to know. And he uses two metaphors from creation. He says, fish, think about fish. You're just swimming around, just living your life. You're enjoying the water. All of us, all of a sudden, a, a net comes down from above and scoops you up, and that's that. You're done. Or birds landing on the ground, bouncing around for food, looking for seeds, and then bam, they're caught in a trap, and that's that. No more flying ever. In the same way, the evil of death happens to us. And I was reminded of this. I, I know some of you, some of you guys know about this, um, but a few years ago, I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to get too into it, but a few years ago, Christine, my wife, almost died. Um, this is, this is a longer, st- this is a story for a different time, but she was minutes, maybe seconds away from cardiac failure. And I was there in the ER, ER with her. And her, I, I, I don't know how to, what the terminology is, but the screen is there and her vital signs are there, right? So her heart rate, stuff like that. You can kind of see the, whatever that's called. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, but you could see the heart rate dropping as time went on. And, um, Afterwards, people were, so I, some of you guys knew, and I was talking to you guys about it, and then some of you were asking, so what did you do? Like, what were you thinking? How did you react? And honestly, I didn't react, I, I didn't know how to react. It, it happened so fast, uh, there was no way for me to even think or process what was going on. Like, I saw the vital signs, but I didn't really understand or grasp what I was seeing. And, and looking back, the, the nurses were going into warp speed. They were, like, putting new things into the IV they were like paging different people. Uh, they brought the crash cart in to like shock her back to life, which even that I, I didn't fully grasp like the situation. And the doctor started talking in the way you only see on TV. You were like, hey, listen to me, right? You're going to make it. Just, you know, keep your eyes open, et cetera. Very serious. And I couldn't even process what was happening until it was over. I mean, I couldn't even, I didn't even realize what happened until Christine told me after that she was thinking, see you, Jesse, have a nice life. I'm out of here. And I realized then, though, that that's how it is. It could happen at any time. Okay, It's not like she was really sick and we knew that this was going to happen. I realized how little control I had or we have over these things. And thankfully, she's okay. She's right here. Um, We had plans, right? We were young. We we had stuff that we were going to do the next day. She was healthy. We we had two young kids. Got to take them to different places. And we were seconds away from being snared at an evil time it's a crazy thing and even if you know that the death your death is imminent even if you're sick or you're diagnosed with a disease or you're getting up there in age it still can be a surprise it's still not what you expected you still can't control it you know i know another two pastors who both lost daughters to cancer in childhood one daughter was three i think and the other was eight it's the kind of trial you would never wish upon even your worst enemy. And you never think it's going to happen to you, but when I think about it, two people I know, it happened to them. So here's the tension. 
The one certainty of life is that every single person is going to die. But everything else is uncertain. Everything else is evil, you could say. And the problem is, though, we get it twisted. See, we push away what's certain. We don't want to think about death. Don't want to plan for it. Don't even want to discuss the terms of our death or, or, or our state or if we want to be resuscitated or not. We pretend we're invincible. We, we plan way ahead in the future. We, we say, tomorrow I'm going to do such and such a thing. And then we rage against the dying of the light when our health starts declining or our mental faculties start to deteriorate. We go into denial. We say, it's not the case. This can't happen to me. And then we talk about the details of our lives as if they are certain. We, we make plans, like I said, for 20 years in the future or 30 years. Our favorite day to get things done is tomorrow. We say, I'll get serious about God after this busy season at work is done. I'll play with my kids when work isn't so crazy. I'll spend more quality time with my wife when the kids are grown up. I'll really serve and I'll really, you know, take my life seriously. I'll really enjoy it when I'm retired. We live like the future is in our control. And if we're just swift enough, we can outrun time. We can outrun death. The race is not always to the swift. And this is what the Apostle James talks about in James 4. This is not a contradiction to the rest of Scripture. Listen to James 4. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Do you know what a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes is? It's hevel, literally. The word for vanity in Hebrew. Our lives are a vapor. They are hevel in the most literal sense. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, except you know that it might be your last day under the sun. That's the one thing that you can know. So here's the question for the second point. Why are you waiting to live? Someone once said, it is not uncommon for people to spend their whole life waiting to start living. Why are you waiting? Let that sink in. Some of us are thinking, okay, I'll really start living life when I turn 18 or when I get married or when I have my kids or when my kids grow up. I'll really get serious about this or that once my career starts. Are you someone where it's always, I'll do it later or tomorrow seems like a good time? Listen, today is the only day that you have for sure. It might be the only day you've got. It's fine to make plans. Don't misunderstand me. Okay, there is some wisdom in this, but understand that you can only make plans with open hands. Nothing is certain except death. So how will that dictate and direct your life from here on out? You know, some of us, we are so afraid of the results being not what we want. That's why we don't start. That's why we can't commit to anything. It's why we don't step out in faith and enjoy the ride along the way. Look, what Solomon is saying, what the preacher is saying, is that the results were never in our hands to begin with. You don't know what's going to happen. There's freedom in accepting this. This is not bad news. This is good news. There is wisdom in this. Because living well and dying well, listen to me, Living well and dying well, they go hand in hand. 
living well and dying well go hand in hand. And you say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, it all comes to a head in the third point. The thing to do. The third point, the thing to do. You might be wondering, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, am I supposed to just sell everything I have and become a missionary right now? Am I supposed to not make any more plans? Am I supposed to uh, smother my kids with my nonstop presence because Jesse said, don't work and spend time with your kids, so quit your job, and just hang out with your kids all day, go to the arcade? What should I do? Well, we live in between what we know and what we don't. We know we are going to die. We don't know anything else for certain. So what do we do in this tension? Well, the preacher tells us what to do, and he's given us a variation of this exhortation throughout Ecclesiastes. Multiple times throughout, he had said something like, enjoy life. But there's a unique spin on it here. He's driving the nail a little bit deeper. Look at verse 7. He says, go, an imperative, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. For God has already approved what you do. Going back to my two pastor friends, I'm caricaturing them again. It was easy to, easy to see their two approaches to life. And depending on your own kind of perspective and your own kind of bent toward life, you could judge them either way. You feel like this one guy needs to lighten up a little bit. He needs to start enjoying life. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes says? The other guy, you might feel like he's a little too worldly. Okay, you got to take things a little bit more serious. Life is short. It was easy, easy to see how they represented two paths in a sense. One was about not wasting life. One was about enjoying life. Who was right? Well, it's not so much about who's right and who's wrong. It's not about the path that you take. It's more about the perspective that you have. It's not about what you do so much as about how you do it. So I can't even judge. I don't even, I don't know their hearts. I don't know why they were doing what they were doing. But this is what verse 7 talks about. And we have to internalize this. God has already approved what you do. He's talking to those who know God, who fear God, who believe in him. Now, countless people have racked their brains trying to figure out what this means. But it's exactly what it sounds like. God holds your life in his hands. The outcome is assured. And the truth is no one is righteous, no, not one. So how can he approve of what we do? It's grace. This isn't a license to do whatever depraved thing you want. That's not what it's saying. He's not saying that God has approved all the things that you want to do. You have a license to kill now. It's not an excuse either to waste your time on frivolity. It's a taking serious of the reality of God. The thing that matters is God. The thing that matters is God. The one thing that is above the sun, that is separate from this created world. Ecclesiastes ends with these words. And they are in some ways the key to the entire book, but I haven't read them until this very moment. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. Listen to what Solomon says at the very end. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. It's all about living for God. So you need to get right with God. And while the text doesn't elaborate here, we know from the rest of the Bible that this is not an easy thing. In fact, it's an impossible thing for a man or a woman. For there is evil and there is madness in the human heart. All of us will die and the truth is we deserve it. 
And God gave his people the sacrificial system. If you know the Old Testament, you know about this. Solomon is the one who built the temple where they offered the sacrifices. You would bring an animal without blemish, without spot, and you would offer this animal as a sacrifice for your sins, a life in exchange for yours so that you wouldn't die. Blood for blood. But this was only a picture of what was to come. For as Hebrews 10 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. How can an animal die for you, a human? We needed a better sacrifice. And this is where the preacher greater than Solomon comes in. People feel like Ecclesiastes doesn't have any gospel in it. It has a lot of gospel. The wisest and the only truly righteous person who ever lived was born into this world, Jesus Christ. His life was in the hands of God, and yet he was crucified as a sinner. Why? Because God hated him? No, because God loved us. He sent his son to die for us so that we could live, so that death would be transformed for us from destruction to a doorway back into paradise, into God's very presence. Not Eden, but heaven. This is why Paul could say in Philippians 1 that death is gain. Do you hear that? Ecclesiastes is all about how everything in this world is not gain. Everything is vanity. Nothing matters But then Paul can say, because of Jesus Christ, death itself is gain. In a world of vanity of hevel, where nothing matters, death, the final enemy, becomes gain because of Christ and his cross. This is the power and grace of God. This is the gospel, the good news. There is more than what we see under the sun. And this brings us full circle. Paul said that if there is nothing after death, we might as well get drunk and eat junk, right? But the grace of God transforms this into something beautiful. Because if you look at verse 7 again, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. We realize now that life, just like eternal life, but life, the minutes and moments that we have right here, they are a gift. Adam and Eve did not surely die the, the day they ate of the forbidden fruit, at least not physically. Why? Because of grace. God clothed them with those animal skins and he let them live out their lives in this world. And we also get to live out in the same way. We also get to live out our lives, however many there are. We can eat our bread. We can drink our wine. And we can do so with joy and with merry hearts. Why? Because this is the day that the Lord has made. And what does it say after that? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 8, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. He's saying, It's okay to wash your clothes. You can take a shower. You can take care of yourself. It's okay, right? In those days, if you were mourning, you would wear sackcloth and ashes. You put ashes on your head. You would let yourself fall into disarray. You wouldn't put oil on your head. And it's true that mourning is oftentimes more appropriate and and better to do in this world east of Eden. But the truly wise person understands that the creator originally made everything good. See, it's not just about seeing the bad. There is a lot of bad, but it's also about seeing the underlying good in the creation that was made to be that way. Then he says, verse 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. He's not shying away from the difficulty of life. Life is toil, but there are so many blessings in it. That is your portion. Enjoy life with your spouse. This is what God has given. And if you don't have a spouse, this applies to everything good. Enjoy lunch out with your coworkers. Hang out with your brothers and sisters. 
go play fantasy football with your church. Maybe I'm just justifying something. What you have is what God has given. Enjoy it. Look, we call this series East of Eden, right? Because of the scripture reading, because when we left Eden, the perfect, the perfection of the pre-fallen world, we were kicked out on the east. Since the fall, we've been exiled from the garden, from God's presence, from paradise. Life is hard. Life is vanity. It says so right here, all the days of your vain life under the sun. But the gift of God, notice in how Solomon words this, the gift of God is a portion of the things that we were made for before the fall. Eating, drinking, being married, working. This is what we were created for. This is what life is. What he's saying is because death is certain, but also because of God and his grace, simply live your life. And working as part of that, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Work hard with all your might. It's a good thing to do. And this is how you know if you're striking the right balance between work and having fun, you know, enjoyment and toil. How do you know that you're balancing things right? How do you decide between my two pastor friends? Well, here's the metric. It's not about going one path or the other. Here's the question. Do you live like someone who is doing God a favor? Or do you live like someone who knows that God is doing you a favor? Do you live like someone who is doing God a favor? Or do you understand that God is doing you a favor by letting you live? See, if you're working super hard because life is short, but you feel like, okay, well, you know, if no one's going to work for God, I'm going to do it. If no one's going to do what God wants in this world, then I'm going to take that burden upon myself. That's older brother mentality from the prodigal son. Okay, God doesn't need you. God is letting you live your life. Then, of course, if you're just enjoying life and not caring about the giver at all, you're not living life the right way either. See, it's okay for my pastor friend to enjoy his hobbies as long as he doesn't live for them. It's okay for my other pastor friend to devote himself to ministry, even over time to, to push himself as long as he enjoys it. And he knows that it's a gift that he's able to do this. This isn't a favor to God. It's been said that Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was asked questions along these lines about, you know, death and the end of the world, allegedly he said these words, Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Allegedly, he said that. But do you hear the wisdom in that? Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. See, Luther, as important as he was in the plan of God, as important as he was in his own day, as important as his work was, he understood his place in the world. The results are out of his hands. We never, he never, we never could control them anyway. We can't change the world unless God ordains it to be so. All we can do is simply do the things that God created us to do. We can work hard today. We can enjoy the things that we have. We need to eat. We're creatures. We can enjoy the food that we have. We can drink. The truth is, the more serious you take God, the more you'll enjoy life. Listen to that. The more serious you take God, the more you will enjoy life. I'm not talking about just having fun. I'm talking about enjoying all of it, enjoying the toil. 
enjoying the relationships, enjoying the little things, because you'll realize, like Luther did, it's all in God's hands anyways. Every single moment is a gift. This life isn't because he needs you here on earth and because you're so special. It's because he wants you here on earth and you are so loved. You will die one day for sure. So live backward from that. Right now you have this life. Hopefully this baby is okay. Take advantage of the time that you do have to do the things that you were created to do. Break bread with people you love. Plant your apple tree. Work hard with all your might just because it's a good thing to work hard. Press the pedal to the metal of your life until the wheels come off and enjoy it all. We'll close here. You know, early on in the film of Big Fish, there's a scene, a flashback scene. They kind of walk through Edward Bloom's life, all of these stories that he tells. And one of his favorite stories was when he was a kid, he found out from some old lady how he was going to die. She could see the future. And she told him that this is exactly how you're going to go. The circumstances, how old you're going to be. And he told his son, this is why I was never afraid of the giants or the problems or the issues because I always knew that this is not how I go. I always knew I wasn't going to die here. And so he could fight the giant if there was a giant. He got beat up to win his wife's heart, but he didn't care. He saved that town. All these tall tales. Now, there's a lot to this story. But the point is, not that uh, these stories are true or not. Okay, that's not where it ends. The point is, it was Edward Bloom's death that always informed his life. As a kid, he knew, he internalized that he was going to die at a certain point. So he tried to make the most of the time that he had while he still had it. Now, it's just a story. Okay, he wasn't a Christian or anything like, like that. But really, this is the lesson. And especially if you're a Christian, this must be the lesson. For you know that you are playing with house money, so to speak. You know that you will die. Of any person on earth, you should know this. You know that you don't have to be afraid. So every minute, every second you have here is a minute and a second that he has given you for his glory and your joy. Every single minute and second is a gift for you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your life. He's given it to you because he is gracious. So live in light of your death and know that the best is yet to come. Hold your plans loosely and welcome whatever happens. And last but not least, no matter what happens in life, good or bad, enjoy it all. For this is the gift of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace to us. God, life is not an easy thing. There is toil, there is suffering, and yet, God, you blessed us so much. And I pray, God, that you would help us to have the eyes to see your goodness and your grace and even the small things and even the bad things. And God, I pray that we would learn to live in a way that pleases you and that reflects your reality in our lives. God, only you can allow, only you can help Only you can take these lessons and plant them deep in our hearts. Only you can cause them to bear fruit. But God, I do pray that our church, that we would be a people that live our lives with all of our might, with joy for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.